Is Journalism in Trouble? Today, I speak with Ryan Thorpe. Welcome to the Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Sabine Alchidiak, and today I'm speaking with Ryan Thorpe. Ryan is an investigative journalist for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation following a five-year stint at the Winnipeg Free Press, where he covered crime and municipal politics before moving on to long-form features and investigations. He once famously went undercover to expose the white supremacist group in Winnipeg. So, Ryan, our question today is, is journalism in trouble? Yeah, well, first, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate the uh, the invitation. Um, I think the short answer to that question is yes. Uh, journalism is definitely in trouble right now um, for a number of different reasons. Um, that said, I still have optimism for the for the industry and for the profession and the practice of journalism uh, long term. Although I think we're in um, yeah a very interesting time period um, right now. Well, to start things off, it may seem like a silly question, but lots of outlets and people are calling themselves journalism, journalists, and it's sometimes confusing to differentiate. How do you define journalism or a journalist exactly? Um, Well, the practice of journalism is really nothing more than um, the dissemination of information um, that is in the public interest after it has undergone some sort of process of, of verification. Uh, fact-checking, essentially. Um, and I would I would describe as a journalist anyone who engages in that practice. I don't think you have to work for a newspaper um, or, you know, a TV outlet or, or a, a radio station to, to be a journalist. Um, a journalist is, is anyone who, who, who engages in that, who, um, you know, checks things out before they rush out the door with them and, and put that information out into the world, um, and who tries to, to dig up and seek out information uh, that is a, of importance to, to people in their communities. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, that's a pretty... It's a pretty kind of baseline answer, but that's that's where my mind goes to. Uh, you've argued that the golden age of journalism was the 20th century. What made it the golden age and what has happened since then? Yeah, so um, I think in many respects, it really, it really was a golden age for journalism. You, you had a business model throughout much of the 20th century um, that was able to fund... Um, outlets that had a lot of people on staff that were able to send people all over the world. Um, and were really able to um, position people on beats um, where they could cover kind of traditional institutions of power um, uh, on a day-to-day basis, which is where I think uh, like real good reporting, particularly on kind of bread and butter issues, uh, comes from. Um, in regards to newspapers, which is where I spent most of my career, um, you know, you businesses, uh, newspapers, they relied on advertising dollars. And uh, prior to the internet, they kind of had uh, pretty good little monopoly going on in terms of if you wanted to put advertising out there, it was one of the main kind of places you would naturally uh, go to. Even things like classified ads in newspapers were a huge revenue generator throughout much of the 20th century. Um, But obviously with the advent of the internet, everything began to change. I think the industry was uh, quite late to start making um, some of the changes we're maybe seeing nowadays, but probably needed to be made uh, in the early 2000s. They... um, yeah, I think a lot of newsroom leaders perhaps underestimated um, the threat that this was going to pose to their business model. They were a little bit quick on the draw to start implementing changes into their own operations. Um, 
And now we're seeing the ramifications of that, which is that, you know, the bottom has totally fallen out of this business model. Um, I saw a figure the other day, Torstar, one of the, the largest newspaper chains in this country, is losing $50 million a year. Um, and so the industry is wow. in crisis. Um, it's in a lot of trouble. And uh, unfortunately, what the industry has chosen as their primary strategy to get through this period is to essentially petition the federal government for taxpayer cash, never ending uh, buckets of taxpayer cash, really. I mean, we were told initially, oh, we need a, a temporary influx of public funds to get us through um, a few years so that we can reinvent ourselves. But um, the reinvention hasn't happened. It's always tomorrow and tomorrow never seems to come. Mm. And now that that first round of money here in Canada from the federal government has dried up, the industry lobby groups have gone back for more. There's been uh, shakedowns, what I would consider shakedowns of, of big tech uh, in order to get even more funds going into the industry. But what really needs to happen is um, for journalism to be viable, one, I, I would argue it has to be independent from government. It can't be on the government payroll. Journalists should not be paid by government full stop. And two, the, the industry needs to figure out how it can be a profitable business in the 21st century. And that's going to look different than it did in the 20th century. Um, but, you know, times change and you either have to adapt or you die. And I, I do want to talk to you a little bit more about your know, solutions later on. Um, but I want to talk about the current state of journalism in Canada. I think many of our listeners will know that news outlets have taken subsidies from the Canadian taxpayer through the government, as you just mentioned. Can you tell me what kinds of numbers we're looking at here? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, it's at this point, there's been so many different like little initiatives that can actually be quite difficult to keep track of all the different public funds that have flown to the industry. So in 2019, there was uh, a $595 million bailout package um, kind of calmly referred to as the newspaper bailout. This was primarily for the, this, or it was for the newspaper industry. That is a massive amount of money. And just as someone who um, worked in the industry, who worked in newspapers, um, and who has um, a lot of respect for the practice of journalism, cares a lot about it, think, thinks it is very vital for our society, this was just a total violation of kind of very basic bedrock principles of the industry. Um, you don't put yourself into a conflict of interest by taking money from an institution that you cover. Um, and so this was something that, that was honestly quite disturbing to me while it was going on. I was at the Winnipeg Free Press at the time, and the, the main lobbyist at News Media Canada was technically my boss, Bob Cox. And I did kind of speak out publicly against this. It kind of put us in an awkward position, um, but I was I was really disappointed in the fact that so few Canadian journalists spoke out against this. But so that was the first kind of big subsidy that came. Uh, then there was something called the Local Journalism Initiative, um, and this was to hire specific reporters for specific beats. Um, and so this was initially a fifty million dollar program. Um, it's subsequently been increased. Um, and if you if you read Canadian newspapers, anyone who is hired under this program has to have the LJI designation alongside their byline. Um, and uh, I always kind of felt bad for those reporters just because it, it's a clear signal to anyone who kind of knows the backstory about this program. They're like, oh, your salary is completely funded by the feds. 
Um, then there was also $60 million that the industry got during the pandemic in kind of emergency support. Um, there was something called the Special Measures for Journalism Top-Up, which was a, another $10 million um, subsidy. Um, and so that would bring us to more than $700 million since 2019, just in, in regards to that. But quite recently, um, they announced that they are actually expanding something called the, the Labor Tax Credit which was kind of embedded in these subsidies that I, I had just spoken about. But um, they're actually doubling uh, the amount of money that um, is going out as part of this labor tax credit. So I think the figure, it's it's more than $100 million, essentially. Um, I forget the exact figure off the top of my head. But so that's that's yet again another, another round of subsidies. So last time I tried to tally it all up, it was something close to like $850 million since 2019. Um, and again, it's it's wow. quite difficult for me to convey just what a violation this is of kind of journalistic first principles, um, perhaps to people, you know, who haven't spent time in the industry or, you know, didn't go to journalism school or, or something like that. But um, you know, this is an industry where for decades, reporters would say, oh, I won't even let a source buy me a cup of coffee. You know, if you go to a coffee shop to sit down uh, for an interview because you want to avoid even the perception of a conflict of interest, not that anyone, you know, a cup of coffee isn't going to sway someone's coverage, right? It, it was a matter of principle. Um, but now the industry is trying to pretend that they haven't, you know, violated this principle while they've taken hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars from the very same government that they're supposed to, to hold accountable. And um, yeah, that's just, it's not a serious claim. Uh, I think that sums up your philosophical objection to the subsidies. And, um, you know, you did a talk for us recently on this subject, and you mentioned the mandating of the right to rebuttal that comes hand in hand with these subsidies. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So actually, this wasn't something I had even been aware of, but uh, I learned it reading um, an article from Blacklock's Reporter, which is an Ottawa-based shop that covers the federal government. Quite a small shop has refused um, any government subsidies, so they are entirely reader-supported. But I guess embedded within these these subsidy deals is that if you're an outlet that is taking taxpayer cash from the federal government and you're reporting on the federal government, the feds have mandated that they have a right to rebuttal in any you know article that they um, are implicated in and wish they wish to choose to respond to. Now, just as a basic practice of journalism, if you are reporting on an institution, if you're reporting on a person, it is incumbent that you go to them and provide them a chance to comment. But there is something quite pernicious about the fact that, you know, the government has now got it in writing that they get to, um, you know, raise their hand and object and insist, no, we get to uh, we get a right to respond here. Um, and, and how that might play out in practice, too, is is interesting. Um, you know, I'm no longer in the industry, so I don't have any behind the scenes. Um, but there's always um, there's always calls that journalists are making in terms of how they divvy up the space in a story. And I just wonder if one of the ways this cashes out over time is you end up seeing you know, more uh, government quotes or talking points in, in these stories due to this this right of rebuttal. Mm. Uh, and having said that, what's your, you mentioned you have some practical objections to the subsidies. What could those be? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, 
For me, it is it is a question of first principles. I think I do begin with kind of this more philosophical objection, but I, I do have objections on a practical level too, which is that um, the only way any of this works, uh, the only way journalism works is if it stands on its own two feet. And, um, and I do think that there is a market for good journalism. I do think journalism can be a... Um, a profitable business in the 21st century. We just we're going through a period right now where we have to invent what that looks like, and I think we are slowing that process down by essentially rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic here um, and and taking all of this this these federal subsidies. Um, and so I think it's one, it's distorting market forces. Um, two, I think it's it's cropping or it's. Um, it's uh, keeping on life support, essentially, uh, a bunch of businesses that, in my opinion, um, it's inevitable that they go under. Um, and I think rather than elongate this kind of like painful period of transformation for the industry, I would actually like to do the reverse and speed it up so we can sooner get to the other side where, you know, we're figuring out, we're doing the actual difficult work of figuring out what this industry is going to look like in the in the 21st century. So, the government the government money isn't um, it isn't curing the disease. It's only prolonging it. So the money hasn't really helped. <laughs> no, no, the the money hasn't helped, and we know it hasn't helped, and the government knows it hasn't helped, and yet nevertheless, it's giving more money. Uh, there was a memo that was. Uh, written up by departmental staff for Pablo Rodriguez when he was the heritage minister looking at the effect of the, the subsidies. And what they found was that um, heavily subsidized uh, publications and op news operations had continued to slash jobs and shutter shops across the country, and that the only real industry growth was coming from unsubsidized digital startups. And we've also, we have seen successful new uh, journalistic operations um, in, in recent years. Um, there have been, you know, new media companies that have been launched that have found a way to, to turn a profit and to grow. Um, and what, uh, yeah, and so I think we need to be looking to those examples as a kind of a starting point to figure out what, um, what this industry can look like in, in the future. But um, yeah, the, the subsidies aren't working. And I think everyone kind of knows that they're not working. Uh, that makes me sad <laughs> <laughs> that we keep, they keep doing the same thing and the same results are, are negative. I, I think I'm, gonna, I'm going to appeal to you in a more emotional way. Um, it might be really hard for many Canadians to come to terms with the fact that these outlets they've grown up with and have come to respect should simply disappear, which is why there might be public support for subsidies. Do you know if there is indeed public support for subsidies based on some sort of nostalgia or whatever it is that makes people want to prop up this industry? I, I mean, yes, there's definitely public support. I personally haven't seen polling on it. I also don't know if um, the average person has a good lay of the land at everything that's been going on. Um, perhaps maybe if they had more information or if they knew that the subsidies wouldn't aren't working that maybe they would feel differently. But I've certainly heard from, you know, individuals who, who have made that, um, that case to me essentially being like, look, I, we don't want these publications to disappear. And while this might not be ideal, what other choice do we have? And I can totally, um, I can totally understand that. Right. Um, I personally, I'm someone who loves newspapers. I, I always have, that's my that's my favorite way to consume uh, the news. Um, 
and I would like them to be around forever. I would like them to never go away. I'd like that if we had more of them. Um, but having said that, you know, it's just like you have to confront reality. Um, you know, I can I can understand the um, the emotional attachment to to publications that you perhaps have grown up reading. Um, you know, your entire life, you're, you're used to getting that Sunday or Saturday paper on your doorstep in the morning. Um, that all totally makes sense to me. Um, but I think the important thing, what we need, what we need is fact-based news in, in, in this country. And um, if we want to continue having that, um, you know, we, we have to have difficult conversations. We have to have difficult, we have to make difficult choices. And, um, and yeah, and I just, you know, wishing things were different, that's, that's not, um, that's not going to change anything. Right. And I think uh, the fact that the, these outlets are, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my logic tells me that these outlets suffering is because people aren't buying newspapers from them. So as much as you want to be nostalgic, like the people are not buying the newspapers and that might be because of the internet or whatever the reason is, but that's just the fact I'm assuming. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's uh, like the explanation, the explanation there, it's going to be, um, an issue that's overdetermined, right? There's lots of different reasons why um, newspaper subscriptions are are declining, and they've been declining for quite some time. And um, and so yeah, so there's no one, you know, the internet was obviously a huge, huge game changer, but I don't think you can point to any one thing as um, mm. as the the ultimate or kind of total cause here. Um, but yeah, I mean, subscriptions have been going down for a long time. Uh, subscriptions were going down, uh, like historically, they've been way down at the places that I worked. Um, I do think that um, it's also a trend that's only going to get worse because newspaper subscribers skew older. Um, and so as mm-hmm. these people um, simply continue to age and, and, and pass away, um, I'm not sure people my age and younger are going to be filling that gap, because quite frankly, I just don't think people want to receive the information in the same way that um, many people traditionally did. So I think you need to start looking at um, different ways of reaching your audience. Um, I think that's, you know, things like podcasts. I think a lot of people now get their get their information through um, through podcasts. I, I think there'll always be, you know, some appetite for you know, even written journalism, I hope, you know, I'm someone who the written word is the, the medium I, I, I like the best. It's the one that um, I've spent the most time trying to to master and like get better at. Um, so I hope there'll always be an appetite for that. But, um, but yeah, we, we have to we have to start thinking differently. We have to start getting creative. And I would say, like, let a thousand experiments bloom, you know, and whichever ones work, like let's continue on with those and the ones that don't cast them aside and then let's come up with a thousand more ex- uh, experiments. Exactly. And it seems that even through the internet, um, recent legislation is making things dif- more difficult for Canadians to consume the news in the not less traditional ways that they do now. And that makes you want to turn to the two pieces of legislation that have truly changed the face of journalism in Canada. And that's mm-hmm. bill C-18 and bill C-11. And I want to start off with bill C-18, something and. There's been changes in that bill. Something happened this week that I, I want to get to near the end of our conversation on, on C-18. Um, uh, but let's start off by letting our listeners know what C-18 is. Uh, it's called the Online News Act. Can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, I traditionally, I've, I've been calling it the, the pay for link scheme, which is a, essentially what I think <laughs> it boils down to. So it's essentially a, an attempt by the news media and the federal government to get social media companies or kind of big tech that anytime a user on one of these platforms would share a link to a news article, the platform itself, the social media company, would then have to kick over money to the outlet that had produced that content. Um, so for quite some time, you had these campaigns, uh, you would see them, sometimes they would run advertising on the front page of newspapers across the country, all in concert on a specific day where they would say, Facebook is stealing our journalists work. Now, this was nonsense framing from the jump. It, uh, it never, it never made sense. No one was stealing anything. Facebook wasn't even choosing to post this, uh, these links or the, this content to their platforms, what was happening was that the users were, were freely choosing to do so, and that this was actually a good thing for the industry because it raised the visibility of the work and it drove traffic to um, the websites, to, to the outlets themselves, which was a revenue generator. And, um, and, so, and that's also why you would see outlets, you know, creating Facebook pages for themselves and, um, you know, posting, uh, sharing their own stuff on, on social media because they wanted it on there. Um, mm -hmm. So in response to, to this piece of legislation, C-18, Facebook essentially said, well, we'll just, if, if you're going to force us into this, uh, we'll just block the sharing of news links on our platform. Basically, like, you can't force us to pay. Um, and I think many people thought maybe uh, many of the decision makers here, be it in government or newsroom leaders, thought Facebook might be bluffing. They, they thought that their, their content was so valuable to um, Facebook that they, they ultimately wouldn't choose to do this. But Facebook wasn't bluffing. They have subsequently blocked news links on their platform, which is why you can't find uh, news articles on there anymore. You can't share them. Um, and now these same outlets have turned around and cried foul. So a little bit ago is that Facebook was stealing their work. And now Facebook has said, well, okay, we'll stop allowing it on our platform. And now the newsroom leaders uh, are saying, no, you can't do that. Start stealing our work again. Like none of this makes sense. It's all motivated reasoning. Um, and it has been a disaster for, for the industry. They've lost, they've lost a ton of money um, because of it. I think it's impacted different publications and outlets differently depending on you know what percentage of their traffic was coming to them from Facebook. I know from there's I've heard of some smaller outlets where this was pretty devastating. Um, I think where I used to work at uh, the Winnipeg Free Press, I, I don't believe they got as much of their traffic through Facebook um, as they did from Google uh, or other sources. Um, so some haven't been hit uh, as hard, but it has been not good for the industry as a whole. And it was utterly predictable, and it was predicted over and over and over again by critics of this legislation who said that this was a bad move, and they they weren't listened to. And it seems like this bill sort of blew up at the face of its proponents, what did you say? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that is perhaps even an understatement. <laughs> uh, and what was the reaction of your fellow journalists to this legislation? 
Um, honestly, again, quite like the, the newspaper bailout, um, I didn't hear much. Um, I feel like a lot of uh, journalists in the country have kind of just put their head down and said, well, I'm just going to go about my work. Um, there were surprisingly few who have spoken out against these these issues. I mean, there are exceptions. Um there are, you know, certain prominent, say, like columnists and stuff who have been um, pretty consistent uh, opponents of um, of these moves. Um, I know if you talk to journalists, just like kind of one on one, right? Um, sometimes you'll get the get them to open up um, and admit that, like, oh yeah, all of this is a disaster. None of this is good. Um, but uh, I think far too few have have spoken out, um, as in my opinion. Newsroom leaders have thrown the industry's credibility uh, out the window, um, and they've sold a lot of very important journalistic principles. Um, and um, and yeah, and there should be more pushback from the actual rank and file reporters who actually do the work every single day. Um, they should be more outspoken uh, about these issues, in my opinion. And what was the reaction uh, that you saw from smaller outlets? I'm assuming it wasn't the same as the larger outlets you're just referencing. Yeah, no, this a lot of this stuff was uh, driven by larger outlets and, and newspaper chains and and, and bigger um, broadcasting companies. I think uh, a lot of the smaller outlets um, didn't didn't want this. I think a lot of the smaller outlets tend to be um, at least at least the ones I follow, they tend to be what I would more classify as new media as opposed to the kind of traditional, um, uh, the traditional industry players. Um, and I think a lot of them, you've seen some of them come out explicitly and say, we didn't want this and now we're hurting because of it. Um, and, and the kind of sad thing is it's being done in their name. And I think, uh, because some of the secrecy around some of this stuff and also just how um difficult and challenging it can be to get like basic public records from the federal government because our access to information system in this country is so broken it kind of casts a pall of suspicion around everyone in the industry including the players who have been uh opponents of it because i just think the average reader you know ev everyone's got busy lives and everyone's focused on a million different things and it's tough to keep track of Oh, which industry player has spoken out against uh, some of these policies? And so I think it's really been detrimental to the industry's credibility as a whole. Uh, and that includes, sadly, um, industry players who have been consistent opponents of the government's approach on these different files. Okay, um, I do want to get into what the government was thinking and what has changed in the past week. But uh, before we do that, we're going to go to break. And I'm talking with uh, Ryan Thorpe, and we'll talk to you a little bit after the break. The Curious Task is a podcast by the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curiousTask at liberalstudies.ca. Special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Janet Bufton, Peter Jaworski, and Scott Shale. Remember to follow us on Facebook and X, and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm back with Ryan Thorpe, and I want to start off uh, the second half of our conversation wondering what you think the government was truly trying to achieve uh, with, B with Bill C-18, including in a PR sense when passing such a bill. Uh, the more you talk about it, the more it 
like makes me wonder what's going on there. <laughs> uh, what would the perfect scenario even have looked like for them if everything had gone the way they wanted it to? I guess I think it, it was always unrealistic, but I guess the, the perfect scenario would have been a more successful shakedown of these big tech uh, platforms. Um, and I think at least in terms of the like, look, this is admittedly speculative. I'm not in these rooms. I'm not privy to their conversations or their kind of behind the scenes rationale. But I get the sense that this government doesn't want to be the one in office as big industry players start going under. They don't want to be seen as the government um, that's responsible mm -hmm. for allowing the, the Canadian news media to die. Um, and um, so I think I think there was probably a big public relations rationale um, here just in terms of trying to um, to. Uh, protect that that image um and um and yeah and i guess i mean if if things had gone according to plan you know you'd still be seeing news links on facebook and facebook would have um essentially put together a bunch of money to then funnel to the industry and i think the federal government also recognizes and as I mentioned earlier, you know, there was that briefing note to the former heritage minister where they essentially conceded the subsidies aren't working. So I think that they know that the money that they have given out isn't enough to, to keep the industry afloat. And so they're essentially trying to gin up other revenue sources for for the industry through um, legislation like Bill C-18. Um, so things have changed on this in the past week. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday, November the 30th, 2023. And in this past week, uh, we've seen Google agree to pay $100 million to publishers every year so they could continue to have their articles shared by their users. What do you think is going to be the impact of this um, on the industry, on journalism, like just in general? Because the whole point was they're pushing back. Uh, it's making everything look really bad. But now Google has sort of fallen apart and said, fine, $100 million a year. Uh, to publishers in this sort of union sense where all the publishers come together and the money gets distributed rather than paying each individual one, which was what was first recommended. It's also less money, I have to say, than, than the government had initially asked them for. Uh, so maybe it's, it's seen as a little bit of a win for Google, but it also seems like a bit of a loss for everyone else, in my opinion. But I'm wondering what your opinion is on that. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing just as a, like a, a bit of background or context here is when I was at the Winnipeg Free Press, I remember Google uh, giving us some money for some journalism initiatives. Um, I wasn't privy to the exact details. It wasn't exactly as part of what I was doing or, or my responsibilities there. But I do think that Google has over the years kind of shown a willingness to be like, hey, we're a good corporate citizen and we're willing to kick in money for for news coverage in different ways. Um, and so I don't think that the, the government has kind of strong armed Google into supporting the news industry here. I think that predates any of this. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's also worth pointing out that Google, like, as of a year ago, had said that they were willing to um, put up $100 million. What they wanted was to cap their liabilities. They didn't want the legislation to potentially you know, make them put in an even more uh, large amount of money. And so after all of this back and forth and these negotiations, Google has now put up $100 million. The government had been asking and the industry had been asking for something closer. I think it was $175 million. 
And after all the negotiations, it was the feds and the industry who caved here, not Google. Google held the line and ultimately um, is willing to give what they said they were always willing to give. Um, now, this will be an influx of cash into um, into the industry. So I think the industry is you know, welcoming this. But you also have to factor in the lost revenue from Facebook. So this part of that lost revenue from Facebook is going to be eaten up of this hundred million that is now going to the industry. Um, so it's not even a, a net kind of hundred million dollar gain for the industry because they have to backfill these losses. And then the other thing is um, it seems like I'm not sure whether or not uh, anyone knows definitively yet, but at least there's some talk that CBC might get some of this funding. So some of the, the hundred mm-hmm. mil annually might end up going to the CBC, which is already getting 1.4, I believe it is, or 1.2 at minimum in in tax dollars every single every single year, and so um, 1.2 billion, or sorry, yes, 1.2 billion with a B, not an, not an, not an M, but um, uh, that's a good catch. Don't want to have that on the record, but um, yeah, 1.2 billion annually, and it seems like they might get um, some of this cash, and I'm curious to see what percentage of it uh they get um but yeah i guess the the underlying point here is just like look it was the feds in the industry who caved not google and ultimately even though you know the press release is going to say 100 million more for news in this country it's not actually working out uh like that in practice because you would first have to subtract the lost revenue from uh facebook that they then have to make up mm. Um, well, let's move on to Bill C-11 at this point, um, or the Online Streaming Act. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, I mean, um, admittedly, I know a little bit less about this one than C-18. C-18 was something I've been following quite closely. Uh, I've also been following C-11 a bit, but not quite to the same uh, extent. Um, but C-11 would effectively grant the government, um, or will grant the government greater power to regulate what you see and say online, um, which I think is um, not a good development. Uh, I think we want to protect the kind of free and open internet to whatever extent we can. I don't want to see increased uh, government regulation uh, on that front. And in regards to how it might impact um, the ways in which people get their news, uh, one thing one thing it could do, let's say podcasts, for example, um, it could provide um, greater ability for um, the government to essentially mandate things like um, Canadian content on um, podcast platforms. This, this would be one example. So they're essentially saying we're not going to go after any of like the individual producers themselves. We're just going to go after the host, the platforms. But what it could mean is that when you pull up your podcast app, um, that they could mandate, hey, you know, X percentage of the content that you highlight on the homepage um, has to be Canadian made. Um, to to meet CanCon regulations. Uh, it could also, uh, and I think this would be far more disastrous, it could um, mean that X percentage of the overall library of content that's hosted on these platforms has to uh, meet CanCon regulations, which I think just based off the sheer amount of stuff that's being produced in Canada compared to the rest of the world would then maybe put the platforms in a position where they have to actually remove content from their libraries in order to meet these requirements. 
Um, and I think that would actually be a pretty um, terrible outcome here. Um, but at least on C11, a lot of this is kind of still up in the air. Uh, I know that they're still having like committee uh, meetings around some of these questions. And speaking to folks who have been following this stuff really closely, I get the sense that like no one's exactly certain how this is <laughs> going to play out yet, but there are definitely um, some concerning elements to this. So I think it's going to be very important for, for everyone to kind of keep a close eye on this as it as it continues to progress. And you said at the talk that there was nine people making major determinations on uh, that would that would be the outcome if this passes and if everything goes the way that the government would like it to. Um, can you explain that a little bit to me? Um, yeah. So essentially, um, at least my understanding is that it would be the under the purview of the CRTC, which uh, is headed up by essentially nine unelected. Uh, individuals. And so they would be the ones kind of calling the shots on this and, um, and, and making these, these decisions. And to me, it's just, it's wild to think of like nine unelected people having such a pivotal role in, in shaping something like this that could have um, really significant ramifications for many different people as they try and go about and access the information that they're, they're seeking out. Um, and, um, and yeah, so that, I mean, that's, that's another kind of wrinkle to this, this whole, um, saga, I guess, um, that, uh, yeah, that I think is noteworthy. And I mean, it really puzzles me. Like I'm trying to work through this with you myself, <laughs> uh, not just for the podcast, but just because I'm really interested in this topic. Um, mm -hmm. And I think our listeners are interested in it. Uh, and I'm just trying to like, I'm, I'm struggling with the information of, about these bills because it just seems bizarre. To, like, I don't understand. Why do you think it might be more acceptable for some to have nine, for some people to have nine people make some major determinations for all Canadians rather than let the internet simply do its thing? Is it just because people don't know it's nine people? Or are we just not bringing that to people's attention? Like, I don't really get it. I think, like, I, it's I, even, even if you're not, like, predetermined, like, you're not one, like, me or you, who has, like, very big concerns about this in general, like, just government creep and all of that uh, into the lives of people, like, even just people who don't really think about it as much as we do would think, nine people, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, 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 I think it's this, it's something that you see um, happening with governments all the time, which is like, oh, we're just going to get a bunch of smart people in a room. They're going to talk through all the different issues. And then we're going to pass this like one big complicated piece of legislation that's going to fix everything. And like that is a crazy way of um, going about, uh, I think, policy in, in many different um Many different cases. Yeah. I think a lot of people probably don't know that it is, you know, effectively nine people who would be calling the shots here. Nine people who I'm guessing the vast, vast majority of Canadians have never heard of and know nothing about. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I, I think that probably many <clears throat> folks are simply unaware. Um, and... Um, yeah, and it probably is something that maybe maybe it would raise the concern level among people who at least currently aren't super concerned about this. If they didn't know that detail, um, maybe that would uh, yeah. you know make them uh, sit up and and pay a little more attention to what's going on here. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't know it was nine people till you told me at the talks. <laughs> So I'm one of those people who didn't know, <laughs> and that makes me angrier than before. But anyway, <laughs> um, 
I want to ask you the same question I asked you about uh, Bill C-18. What is a favorable outcome, you think, for the government in this bill? Like, if they got their way in the end, um, what do they think they're actually accomplishing here um, for Canadians? You know what? Um <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a question. That's a question for them uh, more than me. Um, I guess maybe with the, the CanCon requirements, they, I think maybe they're still just like locked into an archaic and um, kind of understanding of, of the way things work. Like the reality is, you know, look at something like YouTube that has been um, massive for Canadian content producers and has jettisoned many of them to incredibly successful careers, to um, very kind of prominent public positions. Um, and it didn't require CanCons or the CRTC stepping in and making sure that YouTube uh, had uh, a certain percentage of, it, of its content uh, be from. Canadian creators. They were able to do that on their own. So once again, I just think that the industry is, or sorry, the internet has completely changed the game here. Um, and that some of the folks that might be driving some of these decisions are really kind of locked into uh, a mindset that is simply no longer um, applicable or really valid in, in, in the 21st century landscape. So moving a little bit away from the, the two bills we're talking about, I want to talk to you generally about journalism in, in Canada and just more generally. Mm -hmm. um, with, the, with the rise of blogging and the decentralization of news, uh, why do you think journalism should still survive? And you have said in the past that you, you think it should survive, perhaps in a different way, but it, 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 it's worthy of survival. Like, what use do you think it is to society today, especially when it seems the public is rapidly losing its trust in the press? Yes, Um so I guess the first thing I would say is just like human beings to a large extent are like story creating machines. It's one of the things that we do is um, Joan Didion put it. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. Humans are always going to tell stories. We're always going to tell stories about ourselves. We're always going to tell stories about the things that are going on in our communities. Um, and so I don't think it's ever going away. The only question is, what does it look like and how do we make it profitable? Um, two, I think it's important um, that we do do this kind of, um, we figure all of this stuff out because um, one, I think you need to, journalism needs to hold public institutions accountable. One thing I was always quite proud of at my time at the Winnipeg Free Press was that we were the only outlet in the city that still had a beat reporter on um, every single traditional institution of power in that city. We had someone down at the courthouse every single day. We had uh, two people at the Manitoba Legislative Building every single day. We had someone at City Hall every single day. We had someone covering the Winnipeg Police Service uh, every single day. And I do think you need um, good beat reporters uh, in cities around this country in order to um, shine a light on uh, what these institutions are doing and to also call them out when um, they perhaps act in ways in which we would prefer they not. Um, so I think the industry... Um, is, is incredibly important. I think it's vital for free and democratic and pluralistic societies. Um, I also believe that one of the things that kind of makes society function um, is that we need kind of a stable, agreed upon set of facts, right? Everyone can have a different interpretation of like the agreed upon, you know, set of facts and can make whatever arguments they want about them. Um, but one thing I, I, uh, 
I really worry about is kind of like the breakdown of social cohesion that that might happen if we simply have um, a society in which, you know, there's people split off into these different camps where we're almost not even existing in the same kind of reality anymore. Um, and so that's one thing, um, one thing that, that certainly uh, concerns me. And um, if the industry does kind of disappear and you have all of these institutions um, essentially operating uh, unchecked, I think it will be, um, It'll be the glory days for public corruption and for, you know, misspent tax dollars and for uh, mm-hmm. public officials doing things that uh, that they shouldn't be. Um, and so, yeah, I guess those are those would be some of the, the pitches I would make for for why the industry is important, why people should care about it and why people should want it to be sustainable in the long term. Because uh, what we're essentially mm-hmm. doing now is just bailing water out of a ship that is slowly going under and um, we got to, we got to figure out how we, you know, take the remaining pieces and fashion it into a raft of some sort and uh, you know, <laughs> so keep going. And I want to dig in more into the, the public trust in the press. Uh, I mentioned, you know, it's people are, are rapidly losing its trust in the press. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like so whose what- fault is it basically? <laughs> I should add. <laughs> I think it is. Um, I think. Look, if if the people don't trust um, journalistic outlets, then I think journalistic outlets need to look in the mirror. Um, I think it would be quite convenient and quite easy to kind of point at everyone else for why this might be going on, or to bandy about terms like the misinformation crisis or the disinformation crisis. Um, I think the reality is that the industry itself has. Um, has done a, quite a number of things um, that has made public trust in the press worse. Um, some of these are just, I mean, some people don't trust the press, perhaps. I, th- I think this would probably be a small um, portion of it. But there have been some terrible journalistic uh, malpractice cases over the years. You know, people cooking stories or just totally fabricating mm-hmm. stuff, you know. Folks like uh, Stephen Glass comes to mind. You know, some of these high-profile ones where total, people are just totally making stuff up. Like, cases like that obviously hurt public trust in the press. But I suspect that's kind of a small element of what we're talking about here. I don't think any of the government yes. subsidies are helping, right? I don't. I think it's mm-hmm. quite reasonable for the average Canadian to look at the mainstream industry in this country and be like, you guys are getting paid hundreds of millions of dollars by the federal government how are we supposed to believe that you are doing everything you can to dig into them and to hold them accountable in the way that you claim you are? Um, So I think that has been disastrous for public trust in the press in this country. And I also think that the way in which some outlets have been covering these issues, be they, you know, the bailout issues or even things like C-18, like to me, they've been outright or outright, um, misleading their audiences. I think in some cases they've been outright lying to their audiences about what's going on. Um, I think they've been misrepresenting the situation. I think you've seen the industry kind of um, just basically cut a portion of the debate out of the narrative entirely, where if you do have a um, opposing opinion, you're not going to get be getting airtime. You're not going to be, you know, you're not likely to be getting uh uh, guest columns and newspapers to to push back against this stuff. Um, so I think those are those are uh, 
those are big issues. And I think that the industry needs to actually reckon with that as opposed to find other places to direct blame um, to. If, if the public doesn't trust us and the polling is pretty clear, they don't, then we need to figure out uh, what we've done to help contribute to that situation and then also what we're going to do to rectify it and start to earn back that trust. Yeah, and, and on that, you've touched on some of the solutions that you think might bring back journalism to its glory days. And I'm wondering if you can uh, you can sort of give us a few of those solutions that you think might help at this point. Yeah, so I mean, like all of this is, um, it's, it's speculative in a way, right? Like we don't know the solutions yet. We have to kind of continue, well, we have to start and go on this process to figure them out. Um, but, uh, one thing, um, I've said before is that, um, when you saw the rise of the, the printing press and when newspapers really kind of started to, to come into existence in a, in a real kind of broad based way, um, what you saw was a lot of, um, smaller publications. They tended to be more kind of hyper-partisan, um, and they, um, and also quite, a lot of them were, were smaller. And I think that the um, the rise of the internet in some sense is essentially kind of kickstarting this process over again. And so I think one thing that we could see here in the future is the rise of kind of smaller shops, um, not the kind of big bloated staffs of the 20th century newspaper business where you had, I think the Winnipeg Free Press had someone on like the local wrestling beat at one point, like a person who was dedicated to that, like that's the amount of staff that they had that they could justify, you know, someone dedicated to kind of a niche interest uh, like that. I think what we're going to see are smaller shops, probably hyper-local shops, um, hopefully focused on bread and butter kind of issues um, of, about the communities that they're, they're covering um, with much lower overhead. Um, and obviously one thing um, that is uh, ideal about the new digital age is you no longer have to own a printing press if you if you want to start up a publication, which were obviously hugely expensive and took up a lot of space. And, um, and so you needed, you know, property to to, to run a, a newspaper, big, you know, like warehouses almost essentially. Um I think you could see uh, a lot more outlets um, kind of doing something like the the Canadaland model, which is a it's like a left wing progressive uh, digital publication, primarily doing podcasts, but they also do online written coverage as well. And it's a it's a it's a smaller shop. It is a hundred percent reader um, or reader and listener supported. They don't do paywalls, right? They they make a point of saying that they they want their their uh, work to be accessible to anyone who who is interested in, in reading it. But then once a year, they essentially host like a month long fundraising campaign where they they make the pitch: Hey, if you care about this, if you want this work to continue um, to be produced, then then we need your financial support. Uh, Blacklock's Reporter, which I, I had mentioned, I think is another good example of type of model uh, that I think could work in this this new landscape where it is essentially a two-person shop um, and it is very document driven. Um, they're primarily digging up federal records and then turning around and, and producing stories uh, on those. But again, they've rejected, um, as, as Canada Land has as well, they've rejected the, the media subsidies. They haven't taken any government aid and they have 
manage to find a way to, to grow their business. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why I'm optimistic. I do think that there is an appetite for journalism in this country. I do think there is a way to produce it and, and turn a profit. Um, I don't think we need uh, government money. Um, and I think we should reject the government money on, on, as a matter of principle. But uh, I suspect um, you'll see more and more stuff like this as we kind of go through uh, this transition period. I remember when I was actually at the Hamilton Spectator, there was one guy who would uh, essentially just go down and almost like live stream council and um, and would do like hyper kind of city council coverage, hyper local city council coverage. Uh, and it was a one person shop and he was directly uh, funded by his uh, supporters as well. So I think you could even see something like that where you just have independent individual journalists who are able to build an audience and, and make a go of it. Um, it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, I don't think big media companies will exist in this in this new ecosystem. I still think there mm -hmm. will be, you know, bigger fish and, and, and smaller fish, but it's definitely going to look significantly different than it has been. Yeah, I guess um, I'll have to admit, I'm one of those people who likes to read big books on things like Watergate and how that happened and <laughs> journalists doing these amazing things to bring down uh, corrupt governments. And it, it gets me all excited, even though I'm not a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> but um and the fact that people are so dedicated like journalists are so dedicated to the truth that they'll they'll put their own lives at stake and and you did something similar like you went to undercover yourself uh, to with you put your own safety on the line to to get to the bottom of a story that was very important to your community um you know can we possibly get that back when the news outlets are beholden to the very organizations they're supposed to be critiquing? Um, do they, I mean, but at the same time, when we're moving to this model that you're talking about, maybe a smaller, of, of smaller shops, are we still going to be able to do that kind of investigative work that brings down governments or, you know, very shady organizations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, that's a, that's a great question. So the kind of first part of that is, will we still get the kind of critical digging that we need uh, into these institutions when um, journalists rely on them for a significant portion of their, their salaries? Um, I would like to think yes, but the reality is I don't know. Um, I think that many of the reporters that I worked with, um, you know, they would still go about their job with or without the subsidies in the same way. It wasn't going to change anything um, for them. But having said that, I do think even on an unconscious level, you could be um, less likely to dig quite as hard when you know that the government in power is, um, is the one that's keeping your industry afloat. And I'd even heard it directly from uh, a former industry colleague who had said, well, we, we need this or I won't have a job. Um, so I think that this yeah. is something that, you know, reporters are cognizant of. And I think it also, uh, one complicating factor in the Canadian landscape is we have one federal party that's shoveling all this money at the industry. And then we've got the opposition party saying, no, we're going to ax all of this. And um, mm -hmm. I think that that could definitely have, have an impact on coverage. As for um, the second part of that question, which is, will we still be able to get great investigative reporting if we don't have, um, don't have the, the industry, if the industry doesn't look the way it, it traditionally has, it's definitely a concern. Good investigative journalism takes time. It's not cheap to produce. Um, and it, it takes resources. And, um, and another thing too, is that like, if you 
if you are reporting on stories of serious, um, on certain types of serious matters, you also face the potential threat of litigation. And independent journalists often mm-hmm. don't have the sort of like litigation insurance or protections that, you know, industries do, or they don't have lawyers on retainers who are able to go over stories with them before they go out the door to make sure that you're not um, going to get yourself in any sort of legal trouble. So that is, that's definitely something um, to keep in mind and is a concern. Um, But I'm also someone who loves those same books that you do. Um, I'm sure we've read many (laughs) of the same ones. One of my kind of journalistic heroes, one of my um, favorite reporters is uh, Cy Hirsch. Um, And he, uh, I think he was perhaps the finest investigative journalist ever. He's had some misses over his career too, but he has had some bombshells. And um, the first one that really put him on the map was he exposed the My Lai massacre in Vietnam. And he did that as a solo freelance journalist. Um, He did that on his own. And you can actually find somewhere online, it's like an old like CPAC video of him giving a lecture to a journalism uh, class, like a journalist, uh, at, a, at a university in the States where he walks through everything he did to break that story. And I wish they would make a movie out of it because it is cinematic and gripping and incredible. Wow. And just the, the absolute distillation of a reporter who is on the hunt and doesn't matter how many times he hits a brick wall is going to find some way to scale it or some way to get around it um, until he eventually broke that story. And so if he was able to do that, I don't see why we can't now. Um, There have been, um, he he wouldn't be the only example of someone like that who was, um, who was independent and still pushed to keep governments accountable and to expose, um, to expose wrongdoing. And so um, if he, uh, yeah, if, if, if they've been able to pull that out off in the past, then uh, I believe that good reporters can continue to do that in the future. That makes me happy. And I really want to end the conversation on that note because uh, it's a more positive note and I love it. <laughs> so we've talked about a lot and let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you, Ryan. What do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether journalism is in trouble? Yes, it is in trouble, but there's hope, I guess, would be the the main the main takeaway. I still am kind of a long term optimist, even if in the uh, our current situation and in perhaps the kind of short to medium term, I'm I'm quite pessimistic uh, about where we're at and where I kind of think we're going to be for for the next few years. Um, but but long term, I am I am still hopeful. I don't think journalism is going anywhere. Um, I don't think uh, people are ever going to stop telling stories. Um, I think people want to know what's going on in their communities, and they have a right to know what's going on in their communities. And I uh, I think there will always be um, you know reporters there to to do that work. Um, it's just we we got to we got to figure out. Um, the work is too important to, to, to go undone, and the work is also too important to continue, you know, with its insanity, what we're doing. We're doing the same thing over and over again now with this new round of taxpayer cash for, for the industry and the continued attempts to shake down um, big tech to funnel more money. It's, it's not working, 
It's not helping. It is doing serious long-term damage to public trust in the press. Um, and so we just, we, we got to put that stuff aside and we have to do the actual difficult work of, of, of figuring out how this can function long-term and how it can be profitable long-term. But uh, I do think there are solutions there. We just, we got to figure them out. Ryan, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I'm a big fan of your investigative work. So I'm really happy to have spoken with you today. Um, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Anytime. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode is produced by Sabine Alchidiak and Eric Sagan. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Gopenford. You should check out his music online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Sabine Alchidiak. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Ba, 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 ba.